You know, I hope in this series on Micah, which was, was only two weeks old now, last week we weren't here, you know, I realize that when you, when you uh, go through the Old Testament, uh, especially in these kind of scenarios like minor prophets, these kind of things, you end up giving out a lot of information because there's a lot of history. We're going back to the 8th century Israel, uh, 8th century B.C., that is. So you end up setting this historical background because everything that happened happened in, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened be, with a historical background behind it. Things were happening in history. There's geography mentioned throughout this chapter. We're going to see that tonight. And so, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of information dispensed as a result of that. I don't want you to get lost in the details. I'm not trying, I'm trying to make this simple as, as I can. So I don't want you to get lost in all that. But it's necessary to know the facts in order to understand the spiritual truth that's being taught as well. So bear with me as we go through this. I, a couple weeks ago, <clears throat> we talked, we went through uh, Micah verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. Go ahead and turn to Micah chapter 1. And uh, we talked about the fact that Samaria, we said, now to reset this again, Israel was divided kingdom at this time. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You had Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem, capital of the southern kingdom. And so... We, we looked at last a uh, couple weeks ago, Micah chapter 1. It says that Samaria was guilty of idolatry, among other things, and, and God basically brought Assyria through, was going to bring Assyria through his prediction, and wiped them out, and ba basically wiped them off the face of the map, which he did. Uh, and that's what we talked about last time. We, we, we said that Micah used a legal proceeding in, Matthew, in Micah chapter 1 to describe, like a court scene, God was going to bring Israel to trial. <laughs> And then we said he used what's called a theophany, which is an appearance of God. And we talked about that in, in Micah chapter 1. And I hope I don't keep saying Matthew chapter 1 for some, for some reason tonight. Tonight, we're going to look at what's called a lament. Micah is lamenting the nation of Israel. It's like a funeral for the nation, this, this section here. We're going to look at verses 8 through 16 of chapter 1. Debated on how much to go through here. That's the goal to get through that tonight. It's all a unit of thought. And uh, like I said, it's like all of us here have probably been to a funeral, uh, maybe, or uh, I've done a couple of funerals even, or participated in funerals. I know Ryan has had his too many funerals to go through. And they're always a sad time. It's always difficult to go into a funeral, and, and, and to do a funeral is even more difficult. Those are difficult things to do. But this is a funeral for the nation of Israel. And we see that Micah is also a preacher of variety because he's always using something different to get the attention of the people of God. What is a lament, though? Well, it might help to know what it is not. Joy and lamenting are polar opposites. They're totally opposite from one another. They have nothing to do with each other. A lament is something that's very sad. It's something that happens when something goes terribly wrong with a person's relationship with God. Maybe the blessing of God was on someone at one time, and they've gone into sin, they're under the judgment or discipline of God, and now they are experiencing all these things. And so you would lament over them. You would sorrow over them. A lament is recognized by expressions of grief and sorrow and sadness and guilt and fear and misery. It's a form of poetry in the Bible as well. Psalms uh, chapter, uh, the Psalms are a, a prime example of laments. Like Psalm chapter 12, verse 1 says this. This is, this is a lament. Help, Lord, the psalmist is praying. For the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. 
They speak falsely to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. It's a very troubling statement. He's saying, where have all the faithful gone? They've all disappeared. They've vanished into thin air. And what do we do now? And so he's troubled by that. And that's a lament. He's lamenting the fact that, that people are turning away from God and no longer living from him. It's a sad, sorrowful thing. Now somebody says, and, and, and Micah, by the way, this is a lament of Micah in verses 8 through 16. He's lamenting this. Somebody says, well, I thought Christians were always supposed to be joyful and happy. Doesn't John Piper say we're to be Christian hedonists? In other words, we're to seek for joy with all our might in God, right? Yeah, he says that, and he's right about that. But John Piper also said that John Patton, the missionary to New Hebrides Islands, experienced much sorrow and grief when he went there and tried to witness those people. And so you have both these taking place. The Christian life is somewhat of a paradox. You have sorrow and you have joy. And these are, seem to be intermingled at times. It's, it's interesting that the same Jesus that brought us eternal life and hope for heaven is called what? In Isaiah 53, he's called a man of sorrows, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The same Jesus that brought, brings us joy was himself a man of sorrows. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that we're servants of God, and as such, we are always we are sorrowful, yet we're always rejoicing. So you have this paradox always going on. Ecclesiastes 3, there is a time to weep, and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance. These things are always true. And for Micah the prophet, it was now, in their history, a time to mourn. In other texts, this theme of mourning is used to lament or to describe the death of a loved one, such as Abraham who mourned for the death of Sarah in Genesis 23. <clears throat> it's also used to lament the destruction of a nation, as is found in the book of Lamentations, which is a very sad book describing the downfall of Israel. But here Micah is lamenting the, the impending demise of the southern kingdom, Judah. He sees it coming, and he's lamenting that fact. It's going to be a sorrowful uh, section of Scripture. And we need to feel, feel the full weight of this. You say, well, this is depressing, it's sad, it's sorrowful. But I'm telling you there's reasons for us to feel the full weight of this sorrow that Micah felt. And we see, first of all, Micah's resolve to lament in verses 8 to 9. His resolve to lament. It says in verse 8 and 9, because of this, Micah says, I must lament and wail. Listen to these words. I must go barefoot and naked. I must lament like the jackals. And a, uh, make a lament like the jackals, and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah, it has reached even to the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. So Micah resolved to lament. Well, why do I say he resolved to lament? Well, the response here of Micah is clearly one of determination. He's determining to do something. What is that? Lament for his people. Why? Well, Look at uh, verses 6 and 7. God said, I'm going to make Samaria, capital of the northern, king, northern kingdom, a heap of ruins in the open country. I'm going to make it a planting places for a vineyard. I'm going to pour stones down to the valley. We said that Samaria was on top of a hill. God was going to destroy that city. He says all of her idols will be smashed and her images. I'm going to make desolate and so on. He's going to destroy basically the northern kingdom. He's going to send, send Assyria to judge them. So, <clears throat> what does Micah say? He says, because of this, and notice how 
Notice how the NASB translates uh, or puts it across the fact that he's, he's resolved to lament. It says, it translates with the word must. He says, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals. He says, I'm resolved to lament over my people Israel. And that's emphasized here. These verbs show Micah's firm resolve to act in a lamentation. He's determined to mourn publicly over the demise of Judah and, furthermore, the, the northern kingdom. But why this resolve? Can't he just do this in, in private? Can't he just weep in private over his people? Why does he got to make a big deal in public about this? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why. Micah wants the people to know, God's people to know, that his heart is broken for Israel because they have sinned against God and they're being judged by him. He wants them, them to know that. His heart reflects the heart of God, Micah does. God, Micah is sorrowful over the people of God because God is sorrowful over the people of God, and Micah feels it. He's filled with compassion because he sees them heading into judgment. He's broken because of their sin. They haven't repented. He's broken because God knows he knows that God's going to judge Judah for their sin. It reminds us of Jeremiah. Jeremiah said this, My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me for the brokenness of the daughter of my people, Israel. I am broken. I mourn. Dismay has taken hold of me. He says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah broken because his people had sinned against God and they were going to be judged by God. It reminds us of Jesus in Luke 19. who said, It says this, When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He saw Jerusalem, and what did he do when he saw Jerusalem? How would you, what would you do if you went to Jerusalem? We'd all say, oh, this is great opportunity for us to go see Jerusalem, right? Jesus saw Jerusalem, and it says, he wept over it. That was his reaction. He said, if you had known Jerusalem in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for, your, for the days will come when the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you on, on every side. They will level you to the ground, your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation, time of your judgment. That happened in 70 A.D. <clears throat> later on when, when Romans, Rome uh, sacked Jerusalem. <clears throat> and so Jesus is lamenting over Israel. It reminds us of Paul in Romans 9 who said this, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have what? If you've memorized these verses, I have what? I have great sorrow, right? And unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Paul says, I weep over my people because they don't know God. Every time Paul went to a new town to preach, what did he do first? He went to the Jews, right? And then when he said, I'm done with you Jews because you keep refusing the gospel, you keep refusing the Messiah, he kept going to the Jews anyway first because he was burdened for those, his people. So his heart was broken over, over people and he lamented over them. And the witness of the Bible is that God's servants were brokenhearted over the sin of God's people and the accompanying judgment that came with it. Paul was touched at the deepest level when someone sinned. And so he says in 2 Corinthians, who has, who has sinned and I, don't, and, and I don't feel this burning within me. I'm not set on fire because of it. 
He says, I am burning up because people are sinning against God. He felt it deeply. Are we deeply affected by that? When people of God sin, uh, when we sin ourselves, are we affected by that? Does it, does it hurt us? Do we even give it a second thought? Do we even care? Do we think, do we think this? Well, j- they deserve the judgment of God. After all, they flaunted it in God's face. They deserve his judgment. <clears throat> they made their bed, now let them lie in it, right? Do we have that attitude? What do we see? Well, what do we think when we see America going by the wayside? Does it affect us? Does it hurt us? This is a good passage for us to dwell on, especially me. I need to have a greater compassion for people. Uh, and Micah was a broken-hearted prophet. So he wants his people to know his heart is broken, and so he laments. And then another reason he resolved to lament is because he wanted to shake the people out of their complacency. Micah's a preacher, right? And he's preaching to shake the people out of their comp- complacency. He has spoken of the demise of the northern kingdom. Now what about the southern kingdom, Judah? They, the southern kingdom of Judah needed to stop fooling themselves, thinking that they're okay because they're going to get the same punishment that the northern kingdom got. And we're going to see that as we look in this passage. So Micah has a definite message for them. And a public lament from Micah would let them know, you guys are in serious trouble. It's kind of like last week we weren't here. Uh, some of us, we were in southern, uh, southern, so, <laughs> south Florida. And, uh, but I heard that uh, Betsy's father spoke at the end of the message Sunday morning. And according to Mike, there was not a dry eye in the house when he got through because he was talking about something very difficult. And uh, we need to be affected by that kind of stuff. I need to be affected. I can tell you I need to be affected by that. Sometimes I feel like I'm ice cold. I need to be affected by uh, and shaken out of my complacency because of the the nature of lost people, the judgment of God upon them, judgment of God upon, upon sin. And so Micah resolves to lament, and he did so publicly. Now, this resolve is accompanied by appropriate actions. Um, and by the way, Micah followed the ancient customs in Israel of, of expressing grief. He laments, as you can see the passage says, he wails. He walks barefoot and naked. His wailing is compared to the sound of wailing animals. By the way, there was a time when professional mourners were hired to assist in funeral wailing, and they would do that, make wailing sounds. They were hired for that purpose, to heighten the atmosphere of grief. Micah is not doing that for, for that reason. But he says here in verse 8, look at verse 8, I must lament. That is a loud and bitter weeping while beating upon one's chest. He's just in agony over his people. He says, I must wail, which the word means to howl. He's not singing a funeral dirge. This is a violent lamentation, uh, expressing violence. You know, I'm not so sure that Micah, when he preached this, that he didn't actually do this in his message before the people. I'm not so sure he didn't actually emit these sounds of wailing and howling before the people. He says he's going to do it. He resolves to do it. I would have liked to have been there to hear this, actually. He says, I must go barefoot and naked. There's only one other time that phrase is used in the Old Testament. It's used of Isaiah, who went barefoot and naked to symbolize the exile of the people of Israel. Uh, by the way, the word naked means stripped of one's outer and inner robes, clothed only in a loincloth. And so Micah would go this way to symbolize Judah's eventual going into exile as well. He says, I must lament like the jackals. <clears throat> I looked up that a little bit, and uh, apparently jackals make a mournful, sobbing cry. Witnesses that have heard them say it's like a crying infant. It's a continual, prolonged, mournful cry. 
not an expert on jackals, but that's what I, I, I studied at least. He says, I must make a morning like the ostriches. And that's a difficult phrase to translate in Hebrew. Some people think that word ostrich, and it's difficult to understand what it really is, is, is an eagle owl. Because it's, it's, it's got to do with being in waste places, desert places. And they say ostrich doesn't really make a wailing sound. However, an owl does. So many think that it is that. At any rate, he's saying that, he's saying that his uh, lament is accompanied by appropriate actions. Is this just an outward show Mike is making? He's wailing, he's howling, he's going through these mourning rites that they did back in the Middle East. Is this just a put on? No, it's not. As you read this book and as you read this section, you know that Mike is displaying honestly his grief before the people. It's not just a put on, not a show at all. His resolve to lament points to a bitter conclusion in verse 9. He says, Her wound is incurable, it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Her wound is incurable. That is, he's been talking about Samaria from verse 6. I will make Samaria a heap of ruins, the, northern, the capital of the northern kingdom, representing the northern kingdom of Israel. He says, their wounds are incurable. That word for introduces the reason for Micah's grief. Samaria's fall was a forerunner of Judah's fall. He said that Samaria had a wound from which she cannot recover, which is a wound, of, a, a wound of punishment caused by her sin. It refers Her wound refers to the judgment about to overtake it. And the wound is described as, inscur- as incurable. It's going to spread like a cancer to the southern kingdom, that same wound. Bruce Walkie says this, Here the wound is due to the slaughter and wasting of the entire land through the onslaught of war. And as you study this, God, you'll find out that God's going to use the Assyrian nation to bring about judgment to the southern kingdom as well. It says in verse 9, her, her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. This is a bitter conclusion Micah reaches. The judgment of God upon Samaria in the north is now coming to Judah in the south. That's where he lives. That's where he preaches at. It's coming our way, folks. He says, it has even reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. And the wording is very accurate there. The Assyrians actually reached the gate of Jerusalem. And uh, those who care about dates in 701 B.C., it did not take the city of Jerusalem. It did not capture it, but it reached the gates of Jerusalem. <clears throat> it, kind of, it threw a scare into Jerusalem. The, the, the Jerusalem would be throw, overthrown 115 years later, but not at that time. But it got right to their gates. That's a scare for them. It's kind of like 9-11 when terrorists came into New York City and came right into our country. They didn't get any further than that, although that was bad enough as it was. Maybe a bad illustration. But they got here. It scared everybody, right, when that happened. And it scared them to no end. But why did the Syrians not capture the city of Jerusalem? They got right to the gate. They were right there. They could have captured it. What happened? Now... This is interesting. We're going to see, in a, this is a very depressing passage, I'm going to be honest with you, very sad and sorrowful in Micah chapter 1. But we are going to see the grace and mercy of God in the midst of judgment right now. We're going to see it from a parallel passage. Look at 2 Kings chapter 18. You're going to have to look at this. Sometimes in the Old Testament you have to look at other passages because to get the full story of what's going on, you have to do it. You don't have any choice in the matter. 2 Kings 18. I'm going to read a lengthy passage here. You'll have to bear with me. Jerusalem was spared judgment. What happened? You have to understand Assyria was a very 
very cruel nation that did horrible things to people when they captured, captured them. If I were to tell you those things, you would not like what I had to say. I'm not going to bring those things to your attention. 2 Kings 18.13. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, does that name ring a bell to anybody? Micah 1.1. One of the kings that Micah ministered to under was Hezekiah, who was a good, good king, a godly king. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, wicked guy, bad king, bad country. They were, they were intent on taking over the whole world. Assyria wanted one thing, military domination over everybody, okay? Sennacherib comes up against all the fortified cities of where? Of Judah. That's the southern kingdom, just like Micah said was going to happen, and he seized them. Look at verse uh, 17. Then the king of Assyria, he sends his officials, the Tartan, the Rapsaris, the Rabshakeh, those are titles of uh, Assyrian officials. He sends them from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem, you see that? Their army went to Jerusalem, just like we just read about a minute ago. It was going to get there. They went up and they came to Jerusalem. When they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool and so on. And in verse 19, the Rabshakeh, the, the official of Assyria, says to the people, Say now to Hezekiah, tell your king Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, What is this confidence that you have? You say, but they are only empty words, I have counsel and strength for war. He says to the Jerusalem, You, you, you Judah, uh, Jews say, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom do you rely that, rely that you have rebelled against me? Hezekiah had rebelled against the king of Assyria. Now behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. <clears throat> so is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. He's, he's saying, you Jews are relying on Egypt. They're not going to help you. Verse uh, 21, verse 22. But if you say to me, oh, we trust in the Lord our God. Now he's going to make fun of God. Is not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall not worship, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. In other words, Hezekiah had removed, removed all the idolatry in the land, and Assyria thought they had removed worship in the land. They said, look, you said you're relying on God, you removed the worship of God. No, they had removed the worship of idolaters. He says in verse 23, now therefore come with a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 riders if you can set riders on them. And he goes on through this, and he's, he's mocking Israel. And uh, we could read a lot of this, but he says in verse 29, Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He says, Don't listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, come out to me, and everything's going to be fine. And so all this takes place. Well, King Hezekiah hears this. He's scared. He's frightened. He consults Isaiah the prophet, and Isaiah says, Seek the Lord. It's going to be okay. Look at verse 32, chapter 19. <clears throat> I'm sorry, look at verse 15 of chapter 19. What does Hezekiah do? He prays. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Decline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria which he has sent to reproach the living God. Very specific prayer, right? <clears throat> Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations in their lands. They have cast their gods into the fire. They were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. 
Hezekiah seeks God with this troubling situation with Assyria right at the gates, ready to attack. What are you going to do in that situation? He, is, he, he, he seeks the Lord, right? Look what happened. Look at verse 32 of chapter 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up, or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save her for my own sake and for David, my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 of the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. Hezekiah seeks God in the midst of this judgment, and God wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. And the Greek historian Herodotus wrote about this, and he said a bubonic plague killed them, 185,000 people. It's interesting that they noted it in history, right? Even in the midst of judgment, good King Hezekiah seeks the Lord, and the Lord listens and delivers Israel, delivers Jerusalem. The hour is never so dark, and judgment is never, is never so sure that God will not listen to the man and the woman who repents of their sin and turns to him for help and salvation, right? So what started with Samaria spreads to Jerusalem. And uh, Charles Feinberg said, Companions in sin are doomed to be companions in judgment. That's true. Companions in sin are doomed to be companions in, companions in judgment. Samaria and Jerusalem, both companions in sin, going to face judgment of God. But Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, was spared at that time. And so as a result, Micah resolves to lament. And so do we, do we have this kind of resolve that we want to lament over people who are faced with the judgment of God? Micah shows this is the right attitude to have. And then look at Micah's lament for the cities of Judah. Now this is going to be a little bit... I'll, I'll try to go through this a little quickly, verses 10 through 15. But he lists several cities here. By the way, all these cities that he lists, this is Micah's hometown. How do we know this? That was in Micah 1.1, right? Micah said, Micah, Morasheth, Gath. All the cities he's going to list here are right in this area. This area right here. This area was, was protected Jerusalem from attack. It was fortified to protect Jerusalem from, from attack when the Assyrians would come through. And so... He's talking about all the cities are in this area right here. And he starts out in verse, uh, look at verse uh, 10. By the way, before we get there, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, wrote in his memoirs, he says, as for Hezekiah the Judean who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strongly fortified cities as well as their villages of their environs I surrounded and conquered. 200,150 people I conquered, and I brought them here as booty. As for Hezekiah, like a bird in a cage, I shut him up in Jerusalem, his royal city. He says, I shut Hezekiah up in Jerusalem, but he doesn't say I captured Jerusalem because he didn't do it at that time. He does say, however, as I was coming through Judah, I captured 200,000 people on the way to Jerusalem. So that is the judgment of God that he talks about in Micah chapter 1. Now, when we look through these cities in, in Micah 1, 10 through 15, there's several word plays that are in the Hebrew language. You can't necessarily see on the surface. But they're word plays on the cities. And Micah's making, he's, he's, pre, he's preaching his sermon in such a way that people, he has their attention by doing this. Look at verse 10. He says, Tell it, not, not every city has a word play on it, by the way. This one does not. There's a debate as to whether it does or not. I'm taking it as it does not. Verse 10. Micah says, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. What does that mean? 
Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. Well, we know Gath is right here, right? It's a Philistine city. The Philistines controlled that city. He says, tell it not in Gath. In other words, don't talk about this judgment of God in Gath. Don't tell the Philistines about this. Look over in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Should I apologize for you turning here? No. 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. Where did this idea of tell it not in Gath come from? I'm sorry, what did I say? 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. Tell it not in Gath, right? 2 Samuel 1, 17. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the, in the book of Jasher. He says, Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, where the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. David was lamenting the death of Saul. Lamentation, just like in Micah 1. And he says, don't tell those people in Gath about this. Those Philistines or Ashkelon, that's another Philistine city. Don't tell those people about this because you know what's going to happen? They're the enemies of God. They're going to make fun of us. They're going to put us down. They're going to humiliate us. They're going to make us feel like fools. Don't let the enemy know. Don't let the pagan people know because this is really bad. It's going to make us look bad too. And so he says, tell it not in Gath. And, and that's what Micah says here as well. He says, tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. I don't want those Philistines, those enemies of God, knowing about what's happening to Israel over here. Just don't even, don't even cry about this so they won't see you. So he says that in verse 10. Then he goes to the next part, in ver next city, Bethlehophra, in verse 10. At Bethlehophra, roll, roll yourself in the dust. Now he starts a word play in Hebrew. He says... And by the way, it's located in near, near Morisheth Gath, the, the hometown of Micah. And that name, Bethlehophra, means house of dust. In Hebrew, it means house, house of dust. He's saying those who live in the house of dust, Bethlehophra, are to roll in the dust. Rolling in the dust symbolized a humiliating defeat. Micah knew that uh, that city was going to be defeated by Assyrians. He says, roll in the dust. You guys are going to be defeated. Throw yourselves on the ground. There's nothing you can do about it. It's going to be humiliating. Verse 11, he says, Go on your way in habit of shafir and shameful nakedness. Shafir means pleasant or beautiful, that word. And its inhabitants are going to leave their town in nakedness and shame, unlike the beauty they used to have, because they're going to be captives in battle. They're going to join the 200,000 plus that Sennacherib is going to capture and take in battle back to Assyria. <clears throat> you know what it reminds you of? It reminds me of, when the disciples said to the Lord, Lord, look at the temple here, how beautiful it is. Look at all the stones. Isn't it all beautiful here on this temple? What a great-looking temple. And the Lord said, you see this temple? There's going to come a day where not one stone is going to be left upon another. You guys are going to be judged by God. And so, well, any, you know, there's, there's beauty in the world. I realize that. But this world's going to be burned up one day, just like Shafir, whose name means beautiful. You guys are going to fall to the Assyrians. They're going to come by. You're going to go off in shame and nakedness. Then he goes to the next city. He says in verse 11, the inhabitant of Zaanan does not escape. Zaanan sounds like a Hebrew word for go out or come out. Some think that this outgoing town, outgoing town, will not come out to battle. They will not go out to battle the Assyrians because they're cowering, they're cowering behind their walls. 
They're fearful. So they're not going to go out. The name means go out. They're not going to do what their name means because they're afraid. Verse 11, the end of it, he says, The lamentation of Beth Ezel, he, he will take from you its support. The word Beth Ezel means the house of taking away. See that word Beth? It means house in Hebrew every time. The house of taking away. He will take away its support. Literally, he'll take away the standing ground of Beth Ezel. Their protection will be taken from them as the enemy, the Assyrians, come in. Their protection is going to be taken away, and they're going to fall through the Assyrians. <clears throat> Verse 12, he says, For the inhabitant of Meroth becomes weak, waiting for good, because the calamity has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Meroth means bitterness. And they're going to become weak, or literally they're going to writhe in pain, they're going to be in anguish, waiting for good. Some think that Meroth was waiting for help of some kind to come during this coming battle. Maybe some, some think they were waiting for military supplies to come from Jerusalem. They were never going to get it. It wasn't going to happen. Why were they going to become weak waiting? Because it says in verse 11, he said, or I'm sorry, in verse 12, he says, the calamity has come down from who? From the Lord. The word calamity means evil. It means physical disaster in this, in this context here. The physical disaster coming is going to come ultimately from the Lord. If the Lord is sending this disaster, this judgment, who's going to stop it, right? Nobody can do anything about it. Now, some people say, well, the Lord would never do anything like that. Yes, he would. <laughs> yeah, he'll, he's going to punish our sin. He's going to punish our sin, definitely. He'll definitely do it. And so he says, he says to Meroth, you're going to become weak for waiting for good. You're going to get a calamity from God. Verse 13, harness the chariot to the team of horses, though inhabitant of Lachish. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, because in you were found the rebellious acts of, of Israel. Now, this city of Lachish, is it on here? should be the main city. It's located only six miles from Morsheth Gap, <clears throat> not far away. And Rehoboam, a, a, a former king, had fortified this city. This city was strong. It had walls that were 20 feet, 20 feet thick, thinking, wow, we're strong. We can stand, right? Trusting in their military power, <clears throat> Lachish was, but that didn't stop the Assyrians. Assyrians went right in and took Lachish. And by the way, that siege of Lachish is found, was found by archaeologists in Assyria. It was portrayed on the walls, their siege against Lachish and, and the Assyrians taking that. So that was their greatest military success as it went through Judah. The word Lachish and horses sound alike. That's why he says, harness the chariot to the horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. He means that Lachish was a military stronghold. But, and because of that, they trusted in their military might. So Micah says, go ahead and rely on your military power, your military might. See where it gets you. And it got them nowhere at all. Then he says, she was the beginning of sin for the daughter of Zion. Lachish itself was the beginning of sin. What was the sin? Could have been their trust in military might. Could have been idolatry, as mentioned, was mentioned earlier. At any rate, they sin, right? Anything you're relying on besides God is sinful. And so their sin influenced Judah. And that's the problem with sin. We sin against God, and others are influenced by it, right? And they fall as well. And he says here in verse 12, he talks about the rebellious acts of Israel were, were found in you. The sins committed by the nation were first committed by Lachish. Then he goes to verse 14. He says, therefore, you will give parting gifts on behalf of Morasheth Gath. Uh-oh. This is Micah's hometown. 
Assyria is going to come through Micah's hometown, and they're going to destroy it and take it. And Micah's preaching this right here. He says, judgment's going to fall where I was born at. It's going to fall in my hometown by the Assyrians. And the idea here is of this parting gifts is of a girl leaving her family and coming under the authority of a new, a, a new husband. Moresheth Gath is promised to another, that is Assyria. The parting gifts are, are, are illustration of a father's gift to his daughter when, they're ma- when she's married. Only she's not going to like her new husband, Assyria. And Moresheth sounds like the Hebrew word for betrothed. And so you have this word play again. Moresheth Gath is going down. Can you imagine your hometown going down to judgment, being destroyed completely in military battle? <clears throat> Verse 14, Akzib. He says, uh, the houses of Akzib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. That word Akzib sounds like the Hebrew word for deceptive. Stay with me. I know this is a lot of stuff. Sounds like the Hebrew word for deceptive. In Jeremiah 15, the word, that word is used of a brook that is dried up. So Akzib is going to be as undependable for the people of Israel as a brook that would dry up and not offer water to anyone at all. And they're going to deceive the king of Israel somehow. We're not told how. But Akzib is going to fall. Verse 15, Moreover, I will bring you on, I will bring on you the one who takes possession of the inhabitant of Merishah. Merishah, another word play. Merishah sounds like the Hebrew word for possession or one who takes possession. God's going to bring on Merishah, the Assyrian army, which will take possession of them. In the verse 15, he says, oh, and ha- he says, the glory of Israel will enter a dulem. Does anybody remember anything about a dulem? First and second Samuel. Where did David go when he was running from Saul at different times? He went to the cave of a He was on the run from Saul, being chased by Saul. And he went to that cave to hide out. He was an outlaw hiding out from Saul. The glory of Israel here is thought that that's talking about the kings of Israel. The kings of Israel will have to run away and hide at the threat of Assyria coming through, just like David did in Adullam. And so Micah laments for all these cities who are going to fall to the Assyrians, including his own hometown. Now think about this for a minute. Your hometown is under siege from a military power that, that overtook it and is destroyed completely. I just recently, we heard about, when Jeremy was here, the storms that were taking place in northern Alabama and, and uh, people that were wiped out there, and Jeremy was concerned about his family and trying to call them, and he couldn't get a hold of them. <clears throat> and you know how that would be if you have relatives somewhere and some natural disasters taking place. You're concerned about them. Imagine Micah knowing his hometown is going to be destroyed and thinking about them, relatives, friends maybe, that he's thinking about. They're going to be destroyed and wiped out. Why? All because of Israel's sin. And so Micah is lamenting for the cities. <clears throat> and then lastly, verse 16, Micah's call for Judah to lament. Verse 16, he says this. He gives three imperatives here, three commands. Number one, he says, make yourself bald, Judah. Well, that's a strange command. Number two, similar command, cut off your hair. Number three, look, look at the third line. Extend your baldness like the eagle. All ideas having to do with baldness and cutting your hair off. Why? Because shaving your hair was a sign of mourning back then. Shave your hair and get in mourning because judgment's coming, and you guys better get down on your knees and repent and cry and mourn over what's going to happen. When Ezra in Ezra 9 heard about the sins that were committed in that time, you know what Ezra did? 
It says this, when I heard about this matter, Ezra says, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled out some of the hair of my head and of my beard. He was totally distraught about what was happening and literally pulled out some of his hair. He was in such agony and grief. That's what they did back then, to show grief. And so he says, do this. Why? For they will go, because of the children of your delight, is, uh, Judah, for they will go from you into exile. They're going to go into exile. Assyria is going to capture these people and take them away to a foreign land. 200,000 plus, according to Sennacherib, if his accounting is right. And so Micah is lamenting these cities. When you, when you read this section, how do, what do you think about? How does this affect us today? This has got to do with Judah back in the 8th century B.C. What has this got to do with us today? Well, I'll tell you something. There are many people now who are under the judgment of God. Right now, they're under the judgment of God. They have sinned against God. They have rebelled against God. And they're under his judgment. We at one time, those of us who know Christ, were under the judgment of God because we rebelled against God, but Christ saved us from our sins. So we're now blessed to be his children. But John 3.36 says this. Listen to this verse. <clears throat> he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God is abiding on him. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God is abiding on him. All those apart from God are under God's wrath. Your friends, your family members, people you know at work that don't know God, the scripture says they are under the wrath of God right now. If they were to die, they die in their sin and face the judgment of God. They face hell. I'm not saying that to, I'm saying that only for one reason. We need to be concerned about people. God is long-suffering. We know that, right? God is patient. But God's patience, patience will not last forever. It's going to wear out. It's going to wear thin. Because he's going to judge people who have sinned against him. What about these people, these family members, these friends? Do we care about them? Do we give them a second thought? Do we grieve over them like Paul did? Do we lament over them like Micah did his own people? <clears throat> or do we go on as if, all is well. There's no problem at all. We've got our things to do. We've got our life to live anyway. We're busy. We haven't got time for those people. Is that our attitude? It's been often my, my attitude. But we need to take a lesson from Micah tonight about lamenting for people, about mourning for people who are under the judgment of God. It may be that if we ask God, if we pray and we, and we mourn and we weep and we fast and we seek God about these people and we witness to them, that God will spare them from judgment that he will save them by his grace it may be that he will do that and I know he will save some but it's going to have to start with concerned Christians right it's going to have to start with us it's going to have to start with us having a heart for people and this is what we need and this is what we need to take away from this passage I think in addition to something else you may have seen we need to take away this that we need to have a heart for people heart of compassion like, like Micah did and learn to grieve over them as Paul did you know, though we have joy in this life, we also have sorrow. As Paul said, he says, "My my heart's desire in, in Romans 10 and prayer to God for prayer to God for Israel is that what that they might be saved." Let's take this from Micah tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the passage here tonight, and for even though it's a difficult passage uh, to get a hold of, we pray we get the the idea behind it that. We need to be those who, like Micah, were, are concerned about people, are concerned about 
uh, judgment falling on people about uh, about these people, the fate of the people, Lord, as they go off in their sins. We pray we will be concerned. We'll love people. We'll have compassion for them. Seek to reach them. That we'll pray for them and mourn over them. We'll do this for Christ's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name tonight. Amen.